For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out how Mark Kelly and his twin brother Scott are making a unique contribution to the science of space exploration. The Dean of Science at the University of Arizona talks about life in the universe. Visit a specialized gym in Tucson that offers physical fitness as the first line of defense against a debilitating disease. And attendees of the 2015 Tucson Festival of Books remind us of the difference a good book can make. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In just a week, astronauts are scheduled to launch from Russia to begin a year-long stay on the International Space Station. The premier science experiment for the mission has a local connection that may surprise you. Christopher Conover reports. Astronaut Scott Kelly has some unique accomplishments in his space career. After two missions aboard the space shuttle, he commanded the International Space Station, spending 159 days in the orbiting outpost. His time in space includes two Christmases, and now he will become the first American to spend a full year in space. If that task weren't enough, Scott and his identical twin, Mark, will spend the year being poked, prodded, and studied for science. Mark, who lives in Tucson, says the idea is to test the twins to see how their bodies change over the year. We have data on a lot of astronauts after six months. The Russians have flown cosmonauts for over a year, but by accident, not by design. And at the time, the way they collected data was a little bit different than what we do today. So we don't have that experience. And who knows, maybe there's some kind of bend in a curve or a cliff, you know, data-wise that you fall off of. Scott is now at the Russian launch site. Before he left Moscow last week, we spoke with him. He said he's excited to spend the year in orbit. One of the reasons why we're, we're doing this flight and flying for, for longer than we have before to under, better understand some of these effects and uh, how to mitigate them for you know, our future exploration goals. The testing of the Kellys began well in advance of the launch. Mark says the data gathering so far has been extensive. 20 tubes of blood in one day, that same day. I had to do, I think, some ultrasounds. I was taking nitroglycerin. You know, I don't take nitroglycerin, but I'd slip some nitro to see this certain effect on my cardiovascular system. Uh, later that day, I did a, both a stand-up MRI and a supine laying down MRI of my brain, optic nerve, and my heart, and my carotid artery, I think. The test results will yield a wealth of data on long-term spaceflight. But even short-term spaceflight takes a toll on the human body. Mark Kelly is the veteran of four shuttle missions. He says on the shuttle he noticed physical changes right away. You lose blood mass, you know, blood volume, I should say, or plasma volume over that period of time. Your body understands, I mean, physically knows that it doesn't need as much plasma because now you're in zero gravity instead of one gravity where... A lot of the fluid is down by our legs. In this case, it comes up by your head. And there are some nerves that regulate your volume. So you get rid of it. So when you come home, you're seriously dehydrated. 
your neurovestibular system in zero gravity gets all messed up. So when you come back into the what we call the G field, when your body and the vehicle starts experiencing Gs, you you know if you move your head around a little bit, left, right, or up or down, it could feel like you're tumbling. Your cognitive function gets negatively impacted in space. On the space shuttle, you notice even after like three or four days that you just feel like you feel dumber, and you just have to go back and check things more than once. I think it's a combination of a bunch of things. I think uh, it's it's the noise and the lack of sleep. It's very difficult to sleep in zero gravity. Plus, you're incredibly busy, so there's the stress of getting all this stuff done. These missions are very expensive. They're very dangerous. But you do notice, like you actually notice a degradation in your cognitive ability. And we'll be testing that during this flight as a comparison between myself and my brother. And, you know, I'll have this. They're going to ship me this laptop. I've already done some of this testing already, but it's a bunch of... You know, it's decision-making, reaction time, um, kind of IQ-like stuff, and they'll compare it to Scott in space. Retired astronaut Norm Thagard was the first American on the Russian Mir space station. Thagard is also a medical doctor. In 1995, he spent 115 days orbiting the Earth in Mir. He says, like other astronauts, he lost bone density. But what was interesting was the comparison of his bone loss to that of his Russian crewmate, who was on Mir for more than a year. In humans, my understanding is they tend to lose about 1% to 3% of bone mineral per month when they get into either zero-G or go to absolute bed rest if they're here on Earth. And it turns out that Paryukov, the Russian physician, lost about the same amount of bone mineral from weight-bearing bones in 14 months that I lost in four and a half, or in four months, rather. So that means he was on the low end, the 1%, and I was on the high end, the 3%. When it comes to life on the space station, we've all seen the pictures of astronauts exercising, riding stationary bikes or running on treadmills. Some of that is done to mitigate bone loss. Thagard says despite his orbiting exercise regime, he lost aerobic capacity. I remember we were on the eighth or ninth floor of the new building, and it wasn't unusual at all for me to walk up all the floors to the astronaut office every day. But the day I got back, I noticed I could uh, tell it the effort when I would just go up one flight of stairs. NASA is working towards more long-term missions, especially ones sending humans to Mars. Mark Kelly says the data gathered by the year-long medical experiment will help with preparing for that type of mission. We kind of understand the engineering involved, like what we would need to do to make the trip successful. We can't do it right now, but we can get there and we understand it really well. Human physiology, we don't really have a good feeling for what this is a trip like this is going to take. One of the health hazards of being in space for any amount of time, but especially long term, is exposure to radiation, according to Dr. Thagard. I got 12 rims while I was there based on detectors that I carried on my body and that is about that's nearly half of what the OSHA does or used to allow for a whole career for a radiation worker. Radiation exposure is of particular interest to researchers and the Kelly twins are well suited for that part of the experiment because identical twins have identical DNA when they're born. Much of the attention to the year-long mission has focused on the medical experiments on Mark and Scott. But Scott Kelly says that's not all that will go on while he's in orbit. You know, we had the assembly of the space station that was completed a few years ago, and now this is the reassembly. We're moving, 
one of the uh, larger modules and uh, some a uh, couple of smaller ones to prepare for commercial crew vehicles you know being built uh, by u.s companies to bring you know american and other international uh, astronauts to the space station from uh, u.s launch sites when scott returns from space he'll have exactly 10 times the amount of time off the planet as his brother though Mark says someday he hopes to head back into zero-g. The twins' scientific work will not be finished at that point, though. The testing of the two will continue for up to a year. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. For seven weeks earlier this year, the University of Arizona College of Science lecture series, Life in the Universe, explored the cosmos at molecular, biological, and planetary scales. The questions were, what is life, and how do we recognize it? Next, Gisela Tellis talks with one of the series organizers, UA Dean of Science Joaquin Ruiz, about why connecting scientists on the leading edge with the community at large can lead to benefits for both. Dean Ruiz, thank you for joining me. Several years ago, you launched a public lecture series that has since become a popular annual event. Can you tell us about it and how it came to be? The first lecture uh, was uh, series was 10 years ago, and it was on evolution. There was a big debate at the time in Pennsylvania courts as to whether intelligent design should be taught in schools as part of the science curriculum. And many of us here thought that, I mean, we're not policymakers, but I thought that we should educate our community. So we created the first lecture series on evolution to, to teach our community what we knew about evolution. And lo and behold, we had the first lecture, and this one we started actually in the uh, photography center. And the first lecture, we filled the room up, and there were, there were lines outside. So we moved, the, le the second lecture of that series, we moved to so Social Sciences 100. We packed that room, and we ended up in Centennial Hall the first year with 1,000 people showing up to listen to the speakers. So clearly we're in a community that is just uh, interested in learning and interested in science and interested in what we have to offer. We were thrilled about it, and the rest is history. What has been the focus of this year's lecture series? This was the 10th anniversary, so we really wanted to get bombastic about it. And we decided to give a lecture on the life in the universe. Uh, we, this was an extraordinary lecture series. The speakers just did a fantastic job. And we filled Centennial Hall for absolutely every single lecture, including when it was raining outside. So I'm proud of two things. One of them is that we've sort of created a, a thing. Uh, and two, that uh, people are so excited about what we're, what, what we're actually producing. Why do you think people are so excited about it? What do you think it is about this particular lecture series that so resonated with everyone? Uh, well, that's a good question. I think um, the mystery of it, the almost science fiction aspect of it, the fundamental questions of how life begins, even on Earth, these are all really really important questions, I think, to anybody that has uh, cognition, right, that has a sense of who you are. Why is it so important to connect researchers and the community in this way? Well, I, I've been saying this now for, for many, many years, but 
if you look at uh, what a university, and it can be a public or a private university, it doesn't really matter, but in some ways, uh, public institutions, those that are funded by the state, have an obligation of teaching our community and teaching the population in general. In the end, um, Jefferson clearly stated that if we want to have a working democracy, you have to have economic development and education. Do you think it feeds back the other way? Do you think there's something about in, uh, researchers engaging with the community that changes how they do their work and how science is done? I mean, there are very few of us um, that take science in such an abstract way where there's really no interest in how that in the end is going to affect the public. And the more interactions we have with the public, the more that we learn about issues of concern, issues that we should be thinking about. So, so yes, it's a two-way street. And when you, when, you look, when you talk to the lecturers that have given this lecture series, they're, they're also transformed. They, uh, they feel good about their role in our community, period. What were some of the themes that emerged across lectures? Right. Well, the, the, the themes that emerged was, one, how do you, how do you actually define life, um, which was the first lecture. It was just completely devoted to that. The importance of that is, is not only the definition, but if you're going to be looking for life elsewhere, what are the telltale measurements that you actually are looking for? I mean, what, what is the evidence? Unless there's somebody waving a flag out there and you can see through your telescope, the rest of it is either going to be some chemical measurement or something of the sort. So that was, that was very interesting to me the latest understanding of what we're actually looking for. And the other really interesting observation that was made in the lecture series, I mean, there were many, uh, many really interesting observations, was in our last lecture, which was all about intelligence in the universe, not just life, uh, the challenge of time and how long a civilization may or may not have been around for it to be able to communicate. So even though we have an Earth that is 4.5 billion years old, remember that we've only had the opportunity, the wherewithal, to communicate with other uh, uh, planetary systems 70 years. So if you think about that in any planet that may be out there with life, the, the time in which there is a civilization capable of communicating, if it's too short, we'll never be able to communicate with it. University of Arizona Dean of Science Joaquin Ruiz talked with Gisela Tellis. Arizona Public Media presents a special one-hour conversation about life in the universe, featuring a discussion between all seven speakers from the series, moderated by Joaquin Ruiz. It's today at 1 p.m. on NPR 89.1. There will be a repeat broadcast on Sunday afternoon at 3. You can also listen to the complete lecture series online at azpm.org. Exercise provides valuable benefits for both the body and the mind. There's a gym in southern Arizona where this is of particular importance to the members. 
For them, working out is also a way to fight a potentially debilitating disease. Next, Tony Paniagua reports from the Power Gym in Midtown Tucson, where participants share an active passion to improve their lives. It's 8 o'clock in the morning and about a dozen people are breaking a sweat voluntarily. They could still be in bed or having a casual breakfast somewhere, but they choose to push their bodies to new limits. Thanks to the guidance and insistence of professional trainers, these Tucson residents are stretching, exercising, and feeling muscles they never even knew they had. Give it all you got, 8 out of 10. Here we go. Among them, you will find 65-year-old Pam Clement. Clement is wearing black shorts with a bright green top and matching sneakers, dressed to move as part of her active lifestyle. You know, it's so amazing. Uh, your health and your body is a gift, and you abuse it by not using it correctly. And I have been told by my friends I'm in better shape now than I ever was doing all the things that I did because it's done correctly here at the gym. Step and reach, step and reach. This gym in Midtown Tucson may look and feel like a regular exercise facility. Mats on the floor, weights on metal racks, rows of cardio machines parallel to the walls. But this place is different. It's called Power Gym Parkinson Wellness Recovery Center, and it's for clients who are living with Parkinson's disease. Pam Clement is a retired artist and teacher. I've had it for two years. I noticed it when the left side of my body wasn't functioning correctly and my internal gyroscope was a little off. And coming to this gym basically um, gave me hope and promise and probably saved my life. Clement says she is not exaggerating. Her Parkinson's diagnosis was unexpected and depressing, but she decided to do something about it. When she discovered the power gym after moving here from Texas, she put on her workout gear and signed up. I was very active, so any slowing down was an emotional downer for me, big time. So it was a, a real eye-opener for me that um, having health is something you work on, and I have to work harder than maybe a person without the disease, but everybody should work on it. Reach! Rock it all the way over! Rock it over! The exercise is also helping 67-year-old Dick Laird, who was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease a couple of years ago. He's here in khaki shorts and a loose white t-shirt, perfect for all the movement. Nice. It's been tremendous. Okay. Um, I have um, increased my uh, walking abilities, uh, normal walking now. Um, pretty much got rid of the tremors that I had. I'm on medication, but uh, the exercise has helped tremendously. Becky Farley is the chief executive officer of The Gym, a nonprofit organization she founded in 2010. Farley is a physical therapist who also has a doctoral degree in neuroscience from the University of Arizona. Neuroscience studies how nerves affect learning and behavior. Exercise can change the brain. It can also just make you feel better and stronger and more balanced and better coordination. But we're trying to optimize how people exercise so that they really benefit from the brain effects, the brain change because there's, it's possible that they can slow the disease. And at the very least, they're just gonna maintain their function for longer. Step and twist, together. Uh, uh. 
Jennifer Bazan-Weigel is the lead physical therapist at the gym. She is leading this morning's class. Bazan-Weigel says one of the perks about her job is getting to move while meeting great people. Another is the transformation she gets to witness. Oh my gosh, you have no idea. I've been here for two, like almost two years and it, every day there you see change and you see hope and you work with someone for an hour or you work in a class and you, I get energy from working with these people. They leave looking like different people. It is amazing. It is amazing. It really is. Clients Pam Clement and Dick Laird say they're a case in point walking, running, and jumping examples of their experiences. It's a lot of fun. The social ability aspects are tremendous, too, in getting to know the people. And I would encourage anybody to get off their recliner, they're not Homeland Security, and get out there and move it and walk the perimeters and uh, enjoy the health and endorphins that it gives your body. Nice, everybody. Nice. Okay. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. More than 100 hikers from across southern Arizona are expected to take part in an event that supports the Power Gym and raises awareness of their cause. The fifth annual Bowdoin Power Hike is on Sunday, March 29th at Catalina State Park with organized hikes that are 1, 4, and 10 miles long. We have more information at azpm.org. Last weekend, as many as 150,000 people from every walk of life braved the windy weather to participate in the 7th Annual Tucson Festival of Books. On Sunday, I asked some of them to tell me about a book they'd recommend and why they thought it was special. Here is a book I love. My name is Jamie Alkenbrack, and I am a fourth-generation Arizonan born and raised in Phoenix. A book I love was... The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Um, it's just one of those books that's a sweeping fantasy novel that is just really beautiful and it's so character driven. I fell in love with the characters and couldn't stop reading it. It was just one of my favorite books that I'll reread over and over again. I think it's so different because it, it's not necessarily the fantasy world that drives the plot, it's really the characters and their interactions and the situations that they get put into and their decisions that are made based on that. And it's just such a deep, rich character that makes you fall in love with them over and over again and hate them and then fall in love with them again. I'm David Levine. I'm an attorney from Oakland, California, uh, raised in Phoenix. So I, I'm a returning Arizonan. Two retired members of Congress, Tom Davis and Martin Frost. Davis, a Republican from, I think, Virginia. Frost, a Democrat from Texas have written a book. They've done a, a very nice job of examining the roots and causes of the partisanship in Congress. And uh, they have some thoughts about how to address it, not dramatic solutions, but nibbling away at it, maybe to undermine it. If you're not angry about the way the political environment has been corrupted by tsunamis of dark money, if you're not angered by uh, politicians who, certainly entitled to their own opinions, have now come up with their own facts, um, then you're not paying attention. And uh, this is a book that should get your attention called The Partisan Divide. Hi, I'm Taryn Burleson and um, I'm here at the Festival of Books. I um, love the book The Disreputable History of Frankie Landau Banks by E. Lockhart. 
was drawn to the title because the title is um, a mouthful, to say the least. Um, but it has a very strong female character who is trying to break into a boys' club, a very um, entrenched boys' club at her school. And she not only infiltrates, but she turns it upside down and uh, pretty much destroys it. It was a National Book Award finalist as well as a um, Prince Award winner, so it's definitely for young adults. And I'm a young adult uh, librarian at a junior high, Flowing Wells Junior High School. We've got these kids here from Flowing Wells Junior High School, so we love books. My name's Ian, and I'm 13 years old, and I go to Flowing Wells Junior High. I love the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy trilogy. Well, I like it because it's, it's just really random, and it's one of those books that can make you laugh wherever you are and whatever mood you're in. The meaning of life is 42. I'm Anna-Marie Shecker and I've lived in Tucson for 15 years and I love it here. I guess Middlesex is one that really stays with me for, by Jeffrey Eugenides. And it was just a, just a miracle of storytelling. I just really was swept away by the story and um, just really marveled at the author's craft. It's a story about a hermaphrodite, and it's the story of his and her family um, of coming to America and just their whole life and, uh, in the 20th century. And um, yeah, just fascinating. Really great writing. My name's Alex. I like to play the ukulele a lot, as you can probably tell. I've lived here in Tucson my whole life, went to the U of A, just enjoying the book fair today. It's very nice. Enjoying the shade. read uh, something by Patrick Rothfuss, The Kingkiller Chronicle. It's a really good fantasy book. It's about a guy who plays a lute, which kind of appeals to me. But uh, he gets into all kind of trouble, ends up becoming a wizard and all that. You know, it's a fantasy story, so got to have some magic. Really good characters, though. My name is Anthony, I'm 10 years old, and I go to Robin's K-8. Um, my favorite book would be the Diary of the Wimpy Kid series. Actually, part of it is because his bigger, older brother is such a jerk to him, he teaches me what not to do with my, to, to my little sister. There's like other books that try to be as funny as Diary of the Wimpy Kid, but it's never as funny, I don't think. My name is Sarah. My favorite book is Harry Potter and the Sorceress of Stone. Me and my teacher read it together in the class too. It has lots of characters and it just like makes you feel like you're inside the book. Is there anything else you want to say about it? Mm, read it. <laughs> Perfect. Very well said. Thank you, Sarah. You did a great job. Those were voices of some of the many, many people who gathered at the 2015 Tucson Festival of Books. You can find more reading recommendations from a book I love on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can now find this program as a podcast on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.